Welcome to the B&E Podcast with Brandon Colby-Cook and Evan Schulte. Exploring the creative process and finding the balance between artistry and industry. Entirely uncut and unscripted. Brandon, take it away. Evan, all right. So it's Not So Serious Sunday on the podcast, and we have a guest today, Jordan Wade, who is a documentarian, a also very cool guy, likes to travel the world and cover the Olympics. He's actually covered the last couple Olympics, uh, the one in Vancouver, and then the one over there in Russia, in Sochi. Let's not forget London, 2012. And, And London, and London as well, and now he's going to Brazil next. So what's really cool about this podcast is we're going to get to talk a little bit about the art behind being a documentarian and um, you know just someone that's that's out there in real world events but trying to communicate it in an artistic, creative way so that people can really get the emotional impact of what's going on. And uh, one thing I'm really excited about for your Brazil project is is how much you really get behind the scenes of the media and you're not just showing the commercialism but you're actually showing the inside scoop of what people are actually experiencing as they're there. So anyway, it's great to have you, man. Thank you. I'm honored to be here in the B&E podcast and I'm raising a glass. I know that oh, beer yeah. is a part of this podcast. Cheers. So cheers. <laughs> cheers. Cheers. I'll have my first sip and we can begin. Let's I, do it. I was going to say oh, as part of your, your intro to, uh, to Jordan here was in addition to being a traveling documentarian, you also have a really cool name, Jordan Wade. That's gr- I think it's fantastic. Well, I'm like yeah. that's that's like a that's like a film noir character <laughs> name right there. It's like Mr. Jordan Wade, Mr. Wade. Tell us about your documentary. Well, th- thank you for the name comments. <laughs> I've been welcome. struggling with a bit of an identity crisis because a lot of my friends call me Wade. So far, and on Facebook for a long time, I was Wade Jordan. I recently switched back to my actual name, Jordan Wade. So uh, I appreciate the vote of confidence for for what the the God given birth name. JW is. here. Yes. Yeah. I, I was gonna say I would if I were you, I would insist on people calling me by my first and last name all the time. I even, do. Even my friends. <laughs> I would. I, I thought about that, except for the, the, the pompousness of like, hi there, Jordan Wade. Nice to meet you, Jordan Wade. Like, have you ever met you know, in a party situation? When someone does the first and last name intro, yeah, I don't know. I find it could be a little bit pompous. Mm. Um, at the same time, I do like both names together. Yeah. I like to include the Wade in there as well. So, um, <laughs> well, I'm going to call you by your first and last name myself. Just that's just my own thing. I'm going to do it. Yeah. Okay. Anyhow, um, <laughs> that was a great segue. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's always good. You know, you could have you could have a totally terrible name. It's just really hard to say and. It doesn't go well together. Well, in, in all authenticity, I'm, I'm, I appreciate the compliments to my, on my name. And the real reason we've, I've espoused this point a little bit is because I really have had a bit of this identity crisis about which is the, the front-facing name. Is it going to be Wade, which a lot of my buddies have called me in the past, or Jordan, which is, according to the baby name book, is a much more serious name. So. Well, you know, and it's kind of irrelevant. It's, it is a little bit relevant, I think, for you because for your document documentaries, you're, uh, you're very much the personality that kind of connects everybody together. I mean, you're there, um, you know, in the country, behind the lines, communicating to us. So I think um, as people get to know you, it's, it's probably something that you need to think about. 
Mm-hmm. True. Yeah. Exactly. This is why I have, it, have given it some thought. Right. And why it actually does make sense now to go with the full name is that a lot of the connections that people I've met in Brazil, uh, in my when I'm not going to the Olympics, which is a lot of the time, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> which is you know 99 or more. Um, but yeah, in one of my part-time ventures, I'm a tour guide. And I've been doing this for the last year or so, and one of the ma- major clientele that we have is uh, people from Brazil, <clears throat> 20 and 30-somethings from Brazil, and they know me by the name Jordan, as opposed to what my buddies call me. So right. it makes sense that that would be the name going into Brazil. Well, that's great. So, well, why don't you fill us in a little bit about how you got into this whole thing, and like, where did it, where did it start? Were you like a little kid carrying around a camera saying like, documenting rocks and bugs and stuff or what? <laughs> <laughs> I love that visual, but no, it didn't start that. <laughs> I think it started back in elementary school. Uh, my principal was a bit of an Olympic nut. When the 1988 games came to Calgary, do you guys remember that? Not really, Not but really I really. do know that they came to Calgary okay. in 1988. But that was when it happened for you. Well, I was in elementary school, and my principal got us all hopped up on Olympic excitement. We had a McDonald's-themed Olympic lunch. <laughs> we had a torchbearer come into the school to talk with us, and everybody was just all, again, hopped up on Olympic excitement. And then also having a real keen uh, eye and mind for geography, I was always really interested to see where was the next Olympics going to be. Right. So later that summer, it was Seoul in 1988. And then four years later, it was... Uh, it was Albertville 92, and in the summer it was Barcelona 92, and then uh, it was Lillehammer 94, uh, Nagano 98, and so on and so forth. And then eventually, um, by the time it got to Vancouver in uh, 2010, actually, let's go back seven years earlier. I remember very well, uh, July of 2003, listening to the official announcement from the IOC about who was awarded the games, and I remember when it was announced that it was Vancouver. Um, I, a few minutes after I saw it announced the news, I remember going to the washroom, feeling really kind of excited about it. Oh, this is cool. This is coming to Canada in seven years. I don't want to miss it. Uh, and I remember looking at myself in the mirror and saying, Wade, <laughs> that's what I call myself in the mirror. <laughs> you're said, Wade in the mirror. I said, you're going to be there. You are going to go to Vancouver in 2010 and you are going to experience the Olympic buzz firsthand. You're going to do that. And I kind of told this to myself way back in 03. Um, and then, you know, years passed and I had a few different adventures. And then it came around to it that in, I guess, in 2009, I was applying for jobs to, to get uh, into Vancouver in, for the Olympics. And eventually I landed a gig on Craigslist working at the Yahoo Fan Zone. Um, it was called Yahoo Fancouver. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> great pun, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I was I was super stoked to be in Vancouver. I was living in Kelowna at the time too, so I wasn't even living here. But I was staying on friends' couches, working in Yale Town. Yahoo Vancouver was this used to be a a, um, a mini Cooper dealership that they had gutted to turn into this interactive fan zone. And it was great to be in Vancouver, the Olympic City, all the excitement. But what I loved was all the personal stories that were coming out of people who had come to Vancouver to visit the games, people from 
all different parts of Canada, different parts of the world. Of course, the sports was a, was a huge uh, narrative. All of the, the stories that were happening with uh, Joni Rochette, her, her mom passing away, and Alex Bilido and his brother, uh, the Canada's first gold they've ever won on home, so- on home soil. Um, there was the, the Georgian loser. There was the lack of snow on Cyprus. There were so many stories. Um, but there was all, a lot of these great personal stories from, from people that had, had come to Vancouver. And I felt that at this point, I realized, I kind of knew this all along, but when I experienced it firsthand is when I really realized that the Olympics are so massive and so pervasive that there almost needs to be another reporting uh, niche that focuses on like the cultural and social impact of the games and right. not just the, the sports stories. Well, you know, it's interesting the way that you've taken on the Olympics, too, because the Olympics are all about bringing these countries and cultures together and actually getting us to connect through sport. And so we, you know, we have this time of peace together. Right. And, um, you know, it's interesting, especially with your Soji documentary, which was interesting with the whole gay rights thing. But hearing uh, some of the stories about people and, and kind of getting to see them and not having them be asked the typical questions, but more about like what's going on for your culture and for you and, and seeing like, cause I think the media is constantly projecting ideas as to what certain cultures are like or what's going on. And, and I think, uh, what's really neat is the way you're documenting this is we're starting to see that everyone around the world is a lot more, um, you know, I think it's just good for people to see that, that everybody is, we're kind of all the same, you know, we're all, we all have the same struggles, you know, and, um, you're kind of breaking down those walls in a lot of ways, which I think is really amazing. So I think that's really cool. And, uh, I'm excited to see what you do in Brazil because it, you know, it's just the way that the idea was pitched about, you know, um, getting behind the scenes. Cause I think the media has a lot of biases. I mean, we're seeing that with this American election and stuff too, right? I mean, just how, we're, we're getting presented all these ideas, but we're, we're only getting one side of it. We're not mm-hmm. necessarily getting the other side of it. And I think when someone comes in, who's not biased in some way or doesn't have some agenda, but really wants to get in there and show the experience. That's the neat thing, because if you're not at the Olympics, you can still get it through mm-hmm. the medium you're trying to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I feel that the official broadcasters, whoever they may be from a various country and, you know, 160 or so countries that are there almost have their own, all their own official broadcasters. They're focusing on the national stories, the national teams. Uh, It's very sports, athletes, medals, games focused. And then you also have the news, which if it bleeds, it leads likes to poke at all the inadequacies that are happening uh, with the games, with the host city. Right. Brazil right now, tons of corruption. They had a, the, the president was impeached last month. The Zika virus is a, is a hot button topic and is actually a, you know, a, a serious concern. Um, social inequality in Brazil is at an all time high. So there's a lot of, uh, real world problems that, uh, that are happening in Brazil. But I find that so you've got, again, the sport, the official broadcasters are going to focus on the sports, and then the news is going to poke at um, all the, the bad stuff that is happening um, and, and really cast a light on that. But yeah. I feel there's this, there's this, uh, there's this again, this is an area in, in the middle. It's kind of like if, to try to, um, the way I, I'm trying to uh, visualize it and maybe describe it is if it, you look at the entire thing like a sphere, the outter portion of the sphere is, there in the, is um, 
is encapsulated into the Rio 2016 experience or whatever Olympic Games it is. And the heart of it, in fact, a huge portion of it is, again, the sports, the athletes, and the medals. And the outer perimeter, a lot of times, is what the news will poke at of, of the bad things that are happening. Economic uh, targets were not hit. Infrastructure projects are not on time. But there's that gap between the athletes, the sports, the medals, and the games, and all that bad news of of what is actually happening on the ground. How are people in the local communities experiencing the games? How are people coming into the city experiencing the games? And again, I feel there's just a plethora of stories that come out of that realm, uh, and it's been underreported. Yeah. So that's what I want to focus on for Brazil. It's so, ne- it's neat because you dig into the humanity of it all. Like you kind of look at uh, you know more of the. Because I think that's what the Olympics really are about. You know, if you look throughout the history of the Olympics, from from what I understand, is that it's a time where nations stop being at war and everybody competes, and and it's supposed to be peaceful. And I think it's a it's a real opportunity to see that, you know, humanity coming together. You know, it's not just about medals and what's the best country and who's winning these awards and, you know, oh, we got this Zika virus and we have this infrastructure issue and blah, blah, blah. But seeing people come together and actually like humanity function as one thing, you know, which is, I, th- I think that you're starting to capture that message, which is, is, is neat. Um, but I was curious, like what got you, like, how did you see that? How did you like, cause I mean, obviously you're very passionate about the Olympics, but what, at what point did you start to see that there's more of a story than just the medals and just the political elements that are going on? That's a good question because I don't know if I can pinpoint an exact moment or an exact story, but I think going back to 1988 and being a kid and learning about the Olympics, when every time I would see anything on TV about the Olympics or read about the Olympics, I was just drawn in. And some of the, the most exciting stories for me were these stories that maybe had a bit of controversy uh, associated with them, but were still a, were nonetheless a great story of um, of humanity or, or, or coming togetherness. Some of the ones I'll think I'm, I'll, I'll, I'll share with you now, um, you know, when I was in Australia in the year 2000, uh, the games were in Sydney in, in September, so I was... The, I was there in, in earlier before the game started, but when I was watching the games on TV, I was keenly aware of. Uh, I, I felt very connected to Australia because I just spent six months there. So when I saw Kathy Freeman, uh, she was the the sprinter that um, she won a few. She won the hundred meters. She won four hundred meters. She was one of the big female uh, track stars for Australia in, in two thousand, and she was doing her victory lap around the track, and she not only had um, the Australian flag, but she also had the Australian Ab- Aboriginal flag. And because I had just spent the past six months in Australia and I had become a lot more aware of the struggles that Aboriginals face. And, uh, I'm, I would say it's, you know, it's comparable, if not worse than some of the treatment, the mistreatment of, uh, of our own first nations people here in Canada, that seeing her getting to celebrate her culture in that moment uh, was such a beautiful thing. I mean, I myself got goosebumps, let alone uh, millions of Australians that got to watch that moment. And having that world stage, the, the Olympic stage, um, is what... You know, it, it, the fact that there was 
millions of eyeballs, maybe more, maybe, maybe even billions of eyeballs on that moment, uh, was, was a great way of kind of casting light on, on their struggles, but also, um, holding up an ideal of what, what the world could be like, um, a far more inclusive place. So I was really drawn into that story and a lot of other stories like that, where you've got this amazing, this amazing platform of a hundred and somewhere between 160 to 190 countries all in one city for a short amount of time and the potential for these beautiful moments of inclusion to take, uh, to take place. Um, it's just such an incredible uh, opportunity. Of course, there's been a lot of negative, uh, that happened as well. Usually not so much on the athletes, more on the, on the, the countries and the political side. I won't get into that right now, but I think that's where my, my passion toward this, uh, was born. So, I mean, the Sochi documentary you mentioned, gay rights was a, was a, was a big, uh, was a big, huge controversial issue in, in 2014. And for me, it just, it felt like it, 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 <laughs> it's so, it felt very backwards that you've got Kathy Freeman 14 years earlier running around the track with, um, the Aboriginal flag of her, of her tribe in Australia, um, celebrating her, her culture along with the Australian flag. And then 14 years in the future, we've got rainbow flags being banned uh, or any kind of, um, mm. any kind of LGBT paraphernalia, memorabilia being banned at the Olympics in Sochi, Russia. It just felt very, very backwards. And I felt like that was a story that needed more of a light cast on it. Mm. And you took that on. I haven't seen your documentary because I was like, that, that seems like that would have been, he did. Yeah, he went, he went there and he took that on. And, uh, some of the footage you captured was, was, um, still burned in my mind actually, you know? Cause that would have been a somewhat dangerous to have been kind of doing, I would imagine, you know, like to, well, not, I don't know. You tell me <laughs> like well, there is the, like when you're, when you're in a place like, you know, with, with that was going on, cause I remember, remember all of that that happening. And, and yeah, that was, that, that was really huge. That really shocked a lot of people. I think that, that, um, you know, the stance was taken, uh, especially leading up to the games like that. And with sort of how, you know, severe some of like the, the punishments were for, for being in violation of this, it was like, Oh, like, so did you feel at any point that like you were like in any sort of like danger of getting into some, some problems and some trouble by, I was, by doing this? Yeah, I mean, I was definitely nervous uh, ahead of going. I was nervous for a m- number of reasons. I didn't know where I was going to stay. I didn't really know anybody in Russia. But I also knew that since the Vancouver 2010 games and working at Yahoo and then going to um, CBC, going sorry, going to London in 2012 and doing some freelancing with CBC, I, I had this, you know, my, my, my dream, my goal, my vision is to be able to do this at every... Olympics for the next couple of decades, and I thought that I just no matter what, I, if I miss Sochi, I'm not. I'm gonna like this. This mission I'm on is gonna become derailed. So, I just, yeah, I was definitely intimidated. Um, but I also was fortunate too because I had some friends who were from Russia that had said, you know, it's it's not quite as bad as the media is making it out to be. Um, when I first arrived in Moscow, and again I had a, a friend, Martin, a guy that I know from England who lived there, so. And even just having one friend that when I got off the plane, I could go to his place was, was huge for just like 
and I could feel somewhat comfortable with. I, I had one person I could trust in Russia at least. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm very thankful for Martin for providing me like that safe haven, almost as a, as, as a like a green light. Okay, yes, you can go to Russia. You know, one person will be fine. But those first few moments in Russia, seeing like the, the Russian security guards, very very intimidating, walking the streets of Moscow because I spent a couple of days in Moscow before going to Sochi. And a lot of what we've seen in the media about Russia is it's this very cold, very intimidating uh, place. You know, I think some of the, you think of Australia, you think of like beaches, you think of <laughs> London, you think of like Big Ben and like, you know, people with like sort of proper British accents and <laughs> drinking tea. But Russia, I think what we've seen in the media was oh, a much yeah. scarier, like the, the Iron Curtain. Right. Um, and so I, I was... I guess I was buying into the narrative that I'd been told my whole life. Um, and I remember also my Martin's roommate had told me we were, he was walking me to the subway the second day that I was there. And I, I made some mention. I said, boy, everybody doesn't look very happy here. Nobody's smiling. He goes, well, nobody smiles in the streets here. He goes, in fact, you're looking kind of weird. You probably should stop smiling. <laughs> I was like, everything was kind of so new and exciting for me. So I, my eyes are wide and I have a natural smile on my face, but I had to like kind of calm that down because no one else is smiling. Huh. So those moments were quite, were quite scary. Um, getting lost in the train and speaking about this much Russian, if you can see my fingers, there's about a millimeter between my <laughs> thumb and my index finger. Um, but once I actually got to Sochi, it was a, def- a definitely different vibe. And a bit of like the Olympic bubble or the Olympic circus was definitely uh, much more prevalent so you felt safe because there was much more tourists and a lot Olympic flags and whatnot. But the real disconnect was that there was this, this Olympic bubble of all this Olympic excitement that was happening, but knowing what was actually going on um, in other parts of Russia, um, stern faces. And not everybody was, was all was angry all the time, but like it's, it's definitely a, a, a tough, cold uh, demeanor. And, uh, and, and gay... Gay people have very, very little rights there. Very little rights. Well, you know, it also seems like, you know, you're, when you're, <clears throat> as a documentarian, you're kind of like, you have a certain passion for something and issues like your safety and whatever, I think your curious curiosity seems to outweigh that stuff. You know, like, that's what it seems like. And I, I think, um, you know, it seems to me from our conversations that we've had leading up to this and uh, what I've seen that you earn certain trust with people like your demeanor and your way of going about it and your genuine curiosity mm-hmm. seems to open people up because um, I, I actually am surprised to hear you say that because I saw some of, uh, you know, the um, Russian people speak and they seemed really like quite open and connected and, you know, and, uh, I feel like that the media, you know, and I think in Canada, we get a lot of American and media too, right. And just movies and whatever, which is a, a topic Evan and I talk about a lot where we're projected these ideas all the time that the world is like this, but, um, it seems like you also kind of, you know, push through that and actually help people open up more. And you in, in, and put your fears of like the trouble aside because you were there was a couple parts where you were almost in a riot, weren't you? Well, at the same time, I mean, some of the footage was footage that I had got from other right. uh, other publications, um, and they've all been credited yeah. <laughs> at the end of the documentary. Yeah. 
Um, so, did I ever feel like my life was in danger? I would say no, but I was definitely intimidated at parts. Um, and there was a, a certain sort of conversations that I was I was scared to have with certain people. Mm-hmm. Maybe luckily there was a language barrier there too. So um, I think it was... What was interesting, and if you ever get a chance to watch the film, Sochi Pride is what it's called. It, it talks a bit about the disconnect between the Olympic bubble and what was happening in Sochi and what's happening in the rest of Russia and with these laws. But um, on, on your question about curiosity, yeah, I, it's... I've always been uh, very curious, and um, I th- yeah, I, I guess I just the cur- curiosity has always been kind of more of a value than um, than I guess giving in to unfounded fear, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, at the same time, I, some people say I have no shame. <laughs> and I think sometimes I have no shame too where you know I, when I first got to Sochi I was working with this this other girl who um, was kind of my I guess my translator uh, slash fixer slash assistant and she was advising me not to talk to certain people and but I combination of curiosity and maybe a bit of sort of a bit of like a, a, a dumb luck kind of demeanor would sort of just not necessarily give in to the, oh, this is, I'm, I'm speaking out of turn here, uh, and I would just, and I would approach people. Mm. So, the thing for me, is now, now you talked about, like, your interest in the Olympics <clears throat> and and wanting to be there, but how did, where, where did the the documentary side come in? Like, when, when did, when did picking up a camera and, and, filming and crafting a movie How, what like crafting a film when when did that enter your picture when did you figure that that was the way that you were going to because there's so many things that you could do in relation to the olympics mm-hmm. so what was it about documenting them what was what was i think it started in 2010 um i was so I didn't mention this earlier, but before I worked at this Yahoo Vancouver, I was working as part of the um, the torch relay that they had. Mm-hmm. You know, they did this torch relay for for three months. Yeah, they went all across Canada. They went to over a thousand communities. It was a hundred hundred and six days, so three and a half months. And I happened to get on the promo team. I was part of the RBC promo team, so we were. We would be on a huge procession. The, the torchbearer would would run through the streets of various communities, and they had this. They had like a giant Coke float and a giant RBC float and they had like a chase vehicle. So I happened to get a job as part of the RBC promo team. And it was really exciting and I couldn't contain my excitement. So I thought one way to to capture it all was to was to videotape it. So I was like, well, we'd pass a sign of going to a new town. I, I would whip out my video camera and all I had at this point was like a small little, uh, like an HD handy cam. Um, to the point that I was getting in trouble because I was using the camera too often and I wasn't actually doing my promotional <laughs> job. I was, so I had to be told on a number of occasions to put my camera away to the point that I actually ended up being asked to leave the tour. <laughs> it was not, yeah, it was, it was a dark, a very dark moment for me, yeah. to be honest. I remember I was in, uh, the day after my birthday, I was in Fredericton, New Brunswick. It was our first 
night off we had in about two weeks. It, like, it was literally just two weeks straight, and then was, the, was one day, it was like, okay, we're going to go out and have a big drinking night, and the next morning... So and mine was uh, mine was one of three or four birthdays being celebrated. The next morning, I had to go face the music that I was getting asked to leave the tour. Hmm. Was not happy at all. But um, I knew that I wanted to not just be on the float and like waving at the crowd and, and hyping up RBC as a sponsor. Right. But I wanted to like film and capture to show other people, friends back home. Uh, whoever, like, what what were the crowds like in Fredericton and St. John's and Halifax and, and other parts of the country? Although I only really made, I was only there for really the East Coast, the maritime portion of the tour. Right. So <clears throat> when I got to, when I actually got to Vancouver and I was working at Yahoo, the Yahoo Fan Zone, you know, I had a few other moments where I got a chance to do some video stuff just for more on a personal level. And then I got to journalism school, uh... Uh, within about a year of of, um, of Vancouver 2010, and when they gave us an opportunity to, to do a an internship, people were getting jobs at like the Globe and Mail, or I actually had I actually ended up getting an internship with um, uh, Global TV out in Burnaby, and it was a paid internship too. And most of my classmates advised me to 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 go for that because only maybe 10 percent of the internships that students would typically get would be paid internships. But it was going to conflict with the London Olympic dates. So I was kind of weighing the pros and cons. And in the end, I, I decided to know. I said, no, I want to go. I, I want to follow this Olympic dream. Cause I, oh, I, that's I, cool. Yeah, thank yeah. you. So I had this, this vision of going to London and kind of doing... Because I was, I was quite... Uh, I, again, I enjoyed Vancouver, but Vancouver was where the idea of documenting these other stories was born. So pretty well, two and a half years before London, I knew that I wanted to be in London doing something involved with some kind of reporting on like the cultural and, and social aspect of the games. And luckily, you know, I had a really good friend, Lorna from Australia. She's a TV producer. We've been friends for years. She, I, I enrolled her in the idea of meeting me in London. We knew some people there and we could stay on their couches. And I did an internship in the spring at CBC, so I had some CBC connections. So when I got to London, I was able to connect with my CBC people. And for, it was no, it was no uh, stress to them because they had, it wasn't like they had to pay for a flight in a hotel. It's like, I'm going to London anyways. I'm going to stand on friends' couches, but I want to create some content. Can you give me the platform? And they did. Wow. So we got to, I got to be on CBC Radio as kind of like their, their man on the scene which was really cool. And then, uh, again, mostly focusing on the cultural and, and social side of the games. And then, Lauren and I, we, we, um, we created six videos, three of which ended up getting published on the CBC Arts website. So that was, again, a huge, huge victory. And my hope was to go to Sochi and do something similar. But I'll be honest, I spent so much time trying to figure out logistics of how I was going to get there, raising the money. London was easy. The flight was cheaper. I had couches to crash on. Sochi was intimidating and expensive. And I put so much time and energy into the crowdfunding campaign. I literally arrived on the day of the opening ceremonies, and then I was had to figure stuff out. So I had the camera with me still, and I was filming stuff, but I didn't really have the team, the plan, the resources in play. But I did get a lot of great footage, and I, you know, I had a, a lot of my own great experiences. So when I came back from Sochi, feeling a little bit incomplete, considering how much of a success London was, I thought, well, I've got this great footage. I really want to make sure that I something can come out of Sochi. And there's a really important story to tell here. I felt like that as soon as the game was, was were over, 
the whole gay rights controversy just kind of like faded like yesterday's news. Um, and I suppose that's kind of how the Olympic cycle goes, but I, I thought it was too important a story to tell. So the combination of that and me wanting to utilize, maximize this great footage that I had um, is what, what uh, inspired well, yeah. me to create a documentary. Right. And now your documentary is premiering in New York in a couple of weeks, which is really exciting. So it's kind of finally come to that, which is very cool. Um, you. you know, but what's really interesting about what I'm hearing about what you're talking about is, um, you know, the artist, artistic integrity, you know, to say no to the paid internship because you were passionate about going to London or going to England and, you know, experiencing the Olympics there. And uh, I think um, also by trusting yourself, it's led you down this really interesting path. And I think this is the thing that Evan and I are always trying to figure out, like, how do you navigate artistry and industry? And, um, you know, it's interesting because there's obviously a comfort in saying yes to certain things, which seem good and, you know, bring money. But I think we are, we're as artists, that's what we're doing all the time. We're weighing our, you know, what do we really want against what's the comfort and and whatever. And, um, you seem to do a pretty good job of dancing the line between commercialism and keeping your, your art intact, which I think is really cool. Um, cause I think that, you know, what, you know, being a documentarian, like you're like, well, I'm going there and I'll crash on couches, but I'm going to capture this thing or, you know, to be on a tour and they basically want you to wave at a crowd, but you're like trying to film stuff because you have this passion or this drive. It seems like, you know what I mean? I think that's, uh, I think that's the, the thing that, um, that voice, whatever's telling you to do that in some ways, that's how a lot of these opportunities are coming about for you in the future. Would you agree or? Well, I'm really glad that you laid it out that way because I hadn't given it much thought. Yeah. Um, you know, I, th- I thought a lot about it in the moment, about in 2012, making the choice of global TV paid internship or taking a chance on London. And of course, I thought a lot about how stressful it was being fired from the the torch relay. But um, I'm really nice job. I'm <laughs> very articulately laying out. It's all how, about spin, baby. Yeah, it is. <laughs> um, no, but it seems like you, you, you know, you wanted to do this, so you kept doing it. I mean, I've been fired. I actually got fired from a job at UBC. I was doing their media program, and I, I wanted to do certain things, and and uh, they were like, "No, we want you to just capture intramural sports." And I was like, "No, there's more here," mm-hmm. you know. And I know that experience, but yeah, I I think sometimes. When you have uh, when you have pressures from the organization or the company or whatever, uh, you know to do a certain thing, and I think it's important to trust what you want to do. You know, even though sometimes you don't always know why, but it's not always glamorous. You know, the making the right choice. I think as an artist, mm-hmm. making the right choice for you, because I mean, um, you can you can kind of almost sell out to the more comfortable choice if you. You know what I mean? And then you end up missing out on stuff. I, I, I just, some, somewhere deep inside, I knew that um, Vancouver 2010 was very special. And like the way I went from feeling so low, from getting fired from this torch relay, to then feeling like a million bucks from landing this great gig with Yahoo Vancouver. I should also mention too, I applied for just a brand ambassador position and then somehow they made me the manager. <laughs> like they, I was, when I showed up for the job, they said, Oh yes, yeah, so we've got you down here as the manager. And I was like, uh, okay. I kind of just went with it. I'm not sure how that happened, but yeah. 
Um, and also, while it was during the opening ceremonies, really quick aside, um, I ended up meeting. I had a very serendipitous connection with someone who, um, basically, if it wasn't for meeting her, I very likely would not have got into the journalism program at UBC. Um, and so I always see the Vancouver 2010 experience as being very connected to my journalism career because that's kind of where I, I moved, I wanted to move to Vancouver. I wanted to do journalism school and it was sort of born at the 2010 Olympics. Um, so I'm a, sometimes I'm a little bit ser- overly serendipitous, overly sentimental. And I thought to, to, to just acknowledge how special and amazing that feeling was in 2010 that I felt I needed to go and follow my Olympic dream to London 2012. I felt like the Olympics is what led me to journalism school and that journalism school was going to help me follow the Olympics. So I just, even though I wanted the paid internship, but deep down I always knew that I was going to have to follow the Olympic choice. Right. Yeah. Follow your passion. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you didn't follow your passion, you would have never probably made that documentary you know, you probably would have never been led down that road and, and then it wouldn't be premiered in New York. So, you know, it's, it's all, it all is kind of serendipitous, you know, mm-hmm. it's like, sometimes I think the harder choice in the moment or whatever, like I, I really do find in my own life that trusting my instincts and trusting what I feel is to be true in me is often what guides me to amazingly serendipitous things. And it's when I deny that, that I end up somewhere that I'm like, Oh, this isn't right. You know what I mean? Because I think that we have this truth inside of us, you know, this kind of like, like, uh, you know, there's, and I think that's the thing is that there's all sorts of opportunities that come up as an artist. And I think that you can lose your way just by not listening to what, what do you really want? You know? And I mean, you might not see it yet, but I, but I see it. I don't know. I look at it and I go, well, it's, it's interesting because you're telling us your story. And then I, I just go, well, yeah, it's because there's a cause and effect to it all. If you don't do a certain thing, you're not going to have a certain experience, meet a certain person, and and go down a certain road. Had you gone the other way, um, you probably would have missed the Olympics. And you know what would have been the cost of that? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, and you and you you don't even fathom that in your mind, but that's the reality. That's what would have probably happened. I think after I got um, fired from the like the torch relay, I was feeling so low and so lost. Uh, that I was trying to like put it all together. Like, why did this happen? Like, what what is the the, the greater picture here? And I was then thinking about do I do I go to grad school? Maybe do I do an MPA? And I was in this. I was just feeling very sort of lost in my life because this was what should have been the greatest promotional gig ever. And then I somehow um, screwed it up. <laughs> uh, and I was trying to I was trying to make sense of that. And there was a bit of blame of certain people, at, uh, but. At the in the end, uh, you know, I I authored my failure, and I, yeah. I can I can acknowledge that. Um, so then, a few months later, when suddenly I had kind of like found my place again, I wanted to. Um, I I was so I guess feeling so thankful about feeling that I had a direction again, um, and excited about where I was and everything that was happening. That I wanted to like honor that. I didn't want to like. Um, uh, what they say, kick a gift horse in the mouth, so mm-hmm. to speak. And if, I'll share, if you don't mind, I'll share exactly what the serendipitous scenario was. It was, so, <clears throat> opening ceremonies, the opening ceremonies that I've been thinking about for the last seven years 
We're all at the Yahoo Vancouver Fan Zone. We're watching it. They've got a, a bunch of the Yahoo execs from around the world are at in our our space. And I notice this uh, one of the one of the one of the one of the people from Yahoo I hadn't met yet. She was like off in the corner, like doing this kind of weird jig. And I was like, <laughs> I kind of approached her. I, I, I said, "What? What? Excuse me. What are you doing?" And she's like, oh, there's a webcam here that's being broadcast to all, like, you know, all around the world on all, all our Yahoo streams. And I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. And I think I waved at the camera or something, and then maybe I didn't even wave. I was literally in the shot chatting there for about 30 seconds, and then I just exited. That was it. About three minutes later, she comes up to me. She goes, excuse me. She goes, um, is your name Wade? <laughs> and I was like, uh, yeah. She goes, my friend Derek just saw you on the webcam when you walked into the shot. I'm like, no way. Hmm. She goes, yeah. And so it turns out that I had met Derek through this friend Amy years earlier. Derek is one of the head guys at Yahoo. Amy is a friend of mine who's a journalist as well. She now works for MSN Canada. And just the serendipity of that moment led myself and this girl, Catherine, the one who was doing the dancing, to chatting. Uh, and then she asked about you know what I was doing here and what I was up to in my life. And I told her how I was hoping to go to journalism school at some point. She goes, oh, where? UBC. Oh, my God, I just graduated from there. Really? So she then sent a message to the people at UBC saying, hey, this guy's great. I think he'd be a great addition to your program. And my grades were not at the graduate level. So they very likely would have just said, all right, he doesn't get in, forget about him. A few weeks after the Olympics, I get an email saying, "Um, hey, can you give us a phone call? I call them, and they say, listen, you know, we've heard great things about you, but your grades are not at the graduate level. If you are willing to take some undergrad courses, we can see about if you want to apply again next year and try to get in. And so I literally, I just spent the next couple of, I, I went to UBC Okanagan because I was living in Cologne at the time. I did a whole other year of undergrad. I basically jumped through all the hoops that they wanted me to jump into. And eventually I got into the journalism school um, about 18 or 20 months after this serendipitous Olympic moment. But... <laughs> Sorry, long story. I wanted to make yeah, it no, short. Yeah. But if it wasn't for that... So, I'm, again, I'm a big believer in in things happening for a reason. And if it wasn't for that moment and bumping into Catherine, me stepping in the webcam and all that, I feel like I would not have gotten into journalism school. So to, to honor how the Olympics helped me get into journalism school, I wanted to honor the journalism school and yeah. journalism helping me... Um, reporting the Olympics in yeah. my own special way. Well, I mean, we, we talk a lot. Recently, we've been talking a bit about, um, you know, just uh, about being in the place that, you, that you're that you in, you know, like whatever, whatever it is, because, you know, what you see as failure or what you see as success are both can be very misleading things for you. Uh, and, and it's just, it's really interesting because, you know, these things that, you know, we often beat ourselves up. Like you could have easily beat yourself up for these, you know, and you probably did beat yourself up to a, to a degree, but these things end up kind of often unfolding in a way that you just don't, you can't perceive it. But, you know, you had enough moments of sort of presence to where you were at enough moments where you're, you're these people just sort of, they entered into your, into your life and, and through your, your sort of presence to what was happening it just opened up all of these these things that are probably far greater than what was going to happen if if this thing here had worked out or if this thing here had worked out you know so it's like ser- serendipitous yeah absolutely i believe in that 
in that stuff. You know, not everybody will, but <laughs> I've got your vote of confidence Thank here. Um, but also just, just because, yeah, just about being, being present and, and staying with the place that you're at. I think that's really, that's really important. I know that you guys were talking about presence before, which is, but that kind of is a bit of an example and of well, that. You know, it, it just, for me, it, what it brings up is that if you weren't doing that, what the effects are, what's the cost, you know what I mean? Like, and, uh, and I've said on this show before about how it is who, you know, I mean, and it's not, sometimes, you know, people temporarily, but they open up doors for you, which lead you down a path you never expected. And, um, I think if you're doing what, if you're doing what you feel is right at the time, you, you know, you're, you're connected and you're present to the moment. That's when you start to, you know, people notice that. And that's when people like wake up to your presence. And I don't, I mean, you can talk about the, like, I, I, I like using that word serendipity. My dad used to say to me, he says, don't ever call something a coincidence. You undermine, you undermine what has actually been, what's actually happened here. He said, call it serendipity, you know, because there's a, uh, there's a sort of magic to it. When you are in the right place at the right time, doing the thing that you believe you need to be doing, there is a serendipity to it. And I have found that with myself. I mean, um, uh, actually Evan and a guy, uh, we got invited down to Paramount studios that never would have happened had I not decided to follow my passion to teach people how to make movies and had my other show not been on hiatus, I never would have taught movies. So there's this weird serendipity that does happen. And, you know, to think like, and, and actually, even I take it further, I wouldn't even have a writing career probably. And I wouldn't be a paint screenwriter today yeah. had that not happened. Mm. So there's this weird serendipity about trusting where you're at. And I mean, sometimes I beat myself up because I go, man, it should have happened sooner. It should have happened earlier in my life. But then sometimes I wake up and I go, well, it's pretty amazing what's happened. I mean, none of this could have happened. I mean, I could have ended up being an architect because that was my direction when I was in high school. I was in this drafting design program. But I went away to summer, uh, that summer, to, to a little town called Hope. And oh, yeah. my friends, um, one of my friends had a video camera. And I thought, well, we need to make a film. And I had no idea about being a filmmaker. This hadn't even been a thing yet. But, uh, I, but I was like, let's make a film. We made a film. We put it into the talent festival. When we were done. It won. Really? And I came back that summer and I said, I want to be an architect. I want to be a filmmaker. And then my dad, actually, my parents had split. My dad said, well, I want you to move in with me, but I want to move to Vancouver. And I said, okay, great. I moved to Vancouver. Within a few months living in Vancouver, I met my first acting agent, which got me into acting, which opened up my career in a new way. So there is a weird serendipity when you're doing the thing that you feel is right. Like I could have been like, no, I've already invested in doing this drafting design program. I need to be an architect, you know, but I think what ends up happening is you, you, you know, you follow that path, which feels right. And amazing things happen because at any point, had I not done that, there was probably something that would have not happened. And it's probably happened in my life. In fact, I've probably gone the other way and not trusted what I knew was in my heart. And I probably missed an opportunity that, you know, and this is something that you go, okay, well, that's fine. But I, the way I look at my life now is I have to follow my heart. I have to follow the, the truth. And I think there is a serendipity that comes out of it because when you're truly connected to the moment, great things occur, you know, great things come out of that. And that's, that's what I see with, with that moment. Mm -hmm. I mean, and you know, and I don't even think you realize like there's, um, you know, I think a lot about like 
African Americans in, in the States and stuff. And I think about how like, you know, or women, like how they've had to get a voice. Right. And now in, in our generation, it's more about, you know, um, gay rights, you know, it's more something and like, you're speaking up about that. Had you not gone down this road, that would be someone who's not speaking up about that. I mean, you're helping the world evolve, you know, and one day we'll look back at this and be like, why was anyone ever sexist? Why was anyone ever racist? Mm -hmm. Like what, like, you know, but people like yourself, for whatever reason, followed your path and gave people a voice. And you might not think it's a big deal, but I think it is a really big deal. And I think that's the beauty of, uh, you know, that's part of the reason why I wanted you to come on the show, because I think, you know, the fact that you did that made an impact on me. And I mean, I'm not gay, but I, but I look at people who are, and I, and I don't like seeing people have their voice suppressed. I don't like it when, you know, I was bullied in high school and I don't like seeing people get bullied because they're a minority. So there's a part of me that's that, you know, um, but you're doing it, you're standing up for them and you're making a difference. I think that's great. And now you're in one of the biggest cities in North America in New York and your documentary is showing and it's like, you're like, Oh, well, you know, <laughs> but well, it's amazing. Dude. Thank it's, you. It's thank great. You. you know, I think that's just an important thing. You know, you're on, you're on your path. Who knows where that will lead. Thank you. Well, and, and thank you for giving me the opportunity to, to be on the show and, and, and chat about it because in a, in a way, maybe it, yeah, I, I don't know if I have celebrated enough because I've been so focused on Rio right. and that's happening in uh, two months time. I think if this if this was a year earlier, I may have had more time to stop and celebrate and reflect on it. But um, I've just been so focused, um, dare I say, overwhelmed with all the things I'm trying to do to get Rio to come into fruition that I haven't had a chance to stop and really smell the roses or or, or toast to my successes uh, with with Sochi. But you know, hearing what you said right now is really very very kind words. Um, and you know, there's just and some truth to your words as well. So, uh, thank you for for saying that and acknowledging that. And you know, you got me just that much more excited to go to New York. All of a sudden. <laughs> yeah. Well, my pleasure. I, you know, I think it's a, I think it's a struggle for me. I, I was having a conversation about this with someone else because um, recently on the podcast, I've been sharing a bit about this. I, I recently got one of a big uh, writing contract, and then a bunch of other writing contracts came up. And before it happened, and when it happened, I was like so excited. I'm like, Oh, this is so great. This is so wonderful. But I can tell you something, it just became normal. And now I'm focused on the next contract that I need to get. And I think that happens with us as artists. We, we reach a milestone point in our career and we, we celebrate it so briefly before we're on to the next thing that we need to accomplish and forget what we've already done. I mean, if I would have met myself at seven years old, if I was to talk to myself at seven years, say, by the way, when you're, when you're older, you're going to be a paid screenwriter. You're going to write for movies that are going to be made, you know, like with name actors and stuff. It's like, holy hell, like the seven year old me would be blown away by that. Mm -hmm. But now me here is just like, no, it's got to be in the next thing. It's got to be the next thing. It's got to be the next thing. And I think that that's what we forget as artists. I think that's uh, part of this podcast can help. And even people on the other side of this is check in with yourself as an artist and what, like, even if it's a little thing, we've accomplished stuff. I mean, by even your parents saying, don't be an artist, go be a plumber because it's a more responsible job. And you didn't, that's a success. That's a win right there, you know, but we, we don't even celebrate that stuff. We just move on and it all becomes normal what we've done, you know, but it is an amazing thing. Like we've gone out on a limb to try and have a career in this, in this field, whatever field it might be. 
and you're sleeping on couches, traveling across the world, and it doesn't look good on paper in certain ways because you're, you know, sleeping on a couch, but in a way it does look really good. I mean, it's amazing. You're experiencing life. Oh, there's a certain kind of romance to that. Yeah. You know, it's just (laughs) like, oh yes. When you look back as an old man say, when I was a young man, I was sleeping on people's couches. I was (laughs) flying by the seat of my pants. Yeah. (laughs) So with that said, we're all saying it's like, we're talking about presents and enjoying and celebrating the things that you've done. So you're, you're covering for the Olympics, you know, like you're, you're, you've had some experience now telling some stories and and doing some things about, you know, social community things about, about the Olympics, a different take on it. So you've, you've had a little bit of experience. You've, you've covered some ground that way. How are you continuing to push yourself? Like in terms of like, because you know, there's, there's always an element where you go, it's like, okay, well, not, and, and I don't mean this in a way of sort of like success, like as like, oh, you know, like I, I won't be happy until, you know, my film is like in uh, critics choice at, at Cannes, right? <laughs> like, so what is like, like artistically sort of like, what do you, what are you really interested in exploring that you maybe haven't explored before? with, with the Olympics. Cause it's something you keep coming back to, right? You know, it's like, you know, even with like great film directors, you know, it's like Martin Scorsese continues to come back to explore these mob worlds and stuff, you know, he'll go and he'll do something else, but then he comes back to explore this thing. There's something about mm-hmm. it that, that needs to be mined and rooted out is, do you feel like there's something there for you that you want to just, you haven't found or that you're, you're searching for? Well, I'm hoping to, make the Olympics one of my, like, a, one of my kind of pillars or one of, uh, that I return to every couple of years. Uh, and it, it's a really interesting time for the Olympics now as well. Like, when I first fell in love with the Games back in 88, um, and even in 2010, it was a different, a, a different, um, a different world in a way, especially 88. Uh, but how the world now sees the Olympics, and I think especially with the internet and uh, social media, the veil has been lifted. Like the IOC is not this um, great bastion of, of like s- sporting, um, you know, perfection uh, that uh, <laughs> that they make themselves out to be. And again, I don't want to be a guy who comes in and just like takes a shit all over the IOC. But I, I would like to um, point out at what these original values of Olympism once were. Uh, and a lot of these values are things, uh, things like you know, um, human dignity and international brotherhood, and uh, the joy and effort. These are some of some of what uh, Baron de Coubertin, who was the the father of the modern Olympic Games. These, these are kind of written in his uh, his original uh, credo of, of Olympism. And somewhere along the way, with policies like. Um, LGBT people being discriminated against, um, Jews getting discriminated against back in the 36 Olympics, and then and again in, in 72 with what happened in Munich, um, and so many other ills that have happened in the world, and, and unfortunately the, the Olympics has cast a little more of almost a light on that. Uh, and the corruption and the overspending, I mean, Sochi, the gay rights was a big issue in Sochi, but the spending too. Do you know that... Um, the cost of the Winter Olympics in Sochi was $51 billion, 
which is more than the total of all previous Winter Olympics combined. So there's a lot, there's a lot of uh, problems. Like, you know, why should this two-week celebration of sport and culture uh, be more than the GDP of some small nations? Mm. Um, so the Olympics is at a very, a very interesting time, and I know a lot of people actually who were really excited about the games um, years ago are not so excited anymore. You talked to, I remember talking to people in Australia in 2000 when I was there. Everybody was super stoked for the games to come. I see Brazilians all the time on, on, this, on these tours that I do. As I mentioned, I'm a tour guide and, and, and part-time. And no, none of the Brazilians I'm talking to, well, not none, but a lot of them are not excited about the games at all. So 15 years later, 16 years later, the world has awoken to some of the social ills that the Olympics um, highlights. Hmm. So in a way, it's given me a nice, it's, that's given me a nice kind of problem to wrestle with because Olympics are so big and so pervasive and there's so many stories. Uh, there's going to be thousands upon thousands of people in Rio, um, new infrastructure projects, uh, so many stories in Rio to choose from. Yeah. And in a way, uh, kind of what, you know, what we're doing this time is instead of doing a documentary, I mean, we may do a documentary at the end of it all, but we're hoping to go and do sort of three minute video segments on various aspects of right. life in Rio, how different communities are, have been affected positively or negatively. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's kind of, and that is what the focus is for these games. I'm kind of looking at what what I can do and, and who I know, and I've got a, a good a good amount of Brazilian contacts through the people I've met on my tours. My co-producer is from Rio, so this is just kind of what you know what the the story or, or the goal is for this Olympics. Pyeongchang, South Korea, um, South Korea has a lot less social problems per capita than Brazil. But I'm sure there's going to be other issues that I haven't really done a lot of research up to up to this point. Yeah, um, that'll still be worth covering, and I'll continue to do this until maybe it gets it gets boring or bland, or I don't know if the Olympics will eventually like straighten themselves out again. But I love the potential what the Olympics can do, and part of me also has a bit of FOMO, so I would I would have fear of missing yeah. out <laughs> on the games. Yeah. So I want to continue well, to be there and, 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 and have a camera and a microphone at some of the most interesting stories. Yeah, one thing that you just brought up is something that I've never even even considered before was was how the games really does like what it means does change with with the time. Because it is, it's a different, completely different world. Like even just back in, in 2010, at least I feel like from where the world is now from where it was in 2010, it's, it's a very different world, you know, and, and especially in the impact in Vancouver. I mean, it was, it was a huge party for us here. I had a great time oh, and yeah. I know everyone was, you know, it was like, Oh, these cost a lot of money to, to, to do these kinds of things. Right. And, and it's sort of sent sent us into this like real estate boom in the city. But now we're seeing like here, we're seeing the double edged sword of that now where it's like, we saw this real estate boom, but now no one can afford the real estate <laughs> here. Right. So it's, you know, it, it creates all these issues, but yeah, it's like the Olympics is sort of this weird sort of beacon of light that for good or bad still kind of points, shines a light on, the world issues of the time. Mm -hmm. I think that's, that's totally. really fascinating throughout time. Like they, they do, they, these things, the Olympics pop up and it just shines light 
on to some world issues. Cause yeah, it's like, it makes you kind of question, maybe that's an interesting importance of the Olympics that, that I, for me, I think is maybe overlooked, you know, it's like, yeah, these things are thrown and it actually brings a lot of crap out of the woodwork <laughs> mm-hmm. to a large degree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's really fascinating. Do you want, do you want to make documentaries at all about things other than the Olympics about other topics? Definitely. Or, yeah. What are, what, maybe we can, we've talked a lot about the Olympics. Um, what, what are some other areas that interest you? What, what's, um, are you looking for your muse? Like a, <laughs> like a certain topic that you, you know, you want to cover more intimately or what do you think? Well, I think it would be related to, um, uh, social, social and cultural issues. So, which is kind of what I've been pointing, casting light on at the Olympics, but do it on not necessarily Olympic stories because it's only going to happen every two years. And I'll be honest, up to this point, I just haven't had necessarily the experience or the capacity. So I put, in, I've been literally putting in, like up till Sochi, I was, you know, putting in months and months and months ahead of that. So it wasn't like I had a long chunk of time between London and Sochi. I didn't know how Sochi was going to happen. So it took up a lot of my brain space mm. to figure, figure out how, how that was going to happen. I'm hoping now that with each passing games, I get a little more confident and maybe a little more effective in how I can execute making these projects happen. So it give me a little more time and space to actually take on other projects in between. But um, I think the reason I'm so attracted to the Olympics is because I see such potential in how they really have the power of bringing people together, opening up global conversations, um, and it, it just it, you know seeing um, nations um, who maybe are uh, who have opposing political views, but having members of those nation states um, can agree in a moment of, of sportsmanship or friendship, just passing on the streets or high fiving or otherwise, you know, at, in an, at Olympic host city. Um, so. Do I have a necessarily like a, uh, a big dream or a big goal for my next big project? Not necessarily. Um, I, you know, I'm a big, I'm a bit of a nationalist, a bit of a patriot. So I know that next year's our 150th anniversary or 150th birthday in Canada. So I thought about doing some kind of project related to Canada 150. And then 2018 is the Pyeongchang games in Korea. So maybe by 2019, <laughs> I'll have some space to do something else. But, um, also, uh, another interest of mine has to do with cities and urban planning and how, how we plan our cities. And I see that, uh, I think Vancouver does a great job. I'm from Toronto originally. I've lived in six or seven cities around the world. And some cities really get public space and community interaction right, and other cities don't get it so right. So I think Vancouver, I think since the Olympics too, with having all these public viewing areas like at David Lamb Park and set up these screens and having these street parties has almost opened up more of our appetite for public spaces. Um, so I could see myself doing a project related to trying to create a little more awareness around the benefits of living in a society that has put more, much more emphasis on pedestrians and um, getting to work via bicycle and getting out of your cars and having more public spaces and having people, you know, fostering more community that way. You know, I, uh, I, I thought a lot about getting into the documentary world, you know, it's, uh, cause I mean, I've been traditionally, I've been a filmmaker and I've, you know, done things that are fiction or whatever, I guess I'm getting into nonfiction more with this true story that I've been writing. But, um, 
I think it's documentarians are really important. Journalists are really important who want to tell a story that isn't pop culture media. Because I feel like there's a lot of, uh, you know, just a lot of bias and agenda that comes through, you know, I don't even watch TV anymore. I mean, I, 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 I go to certain news articles and I watch things on YouTube from people who are, are personally trusted sources. Mm-hmm. But I find like, you know, um, just right now, like, and it's bringing out more of an awareness than ever, but just how the media has been presenting certain things about the American election, for example, which I've been following because it's, it's interested me just because I think it's such a dynamic time in our, you know, in our history. But, um, how they're presenting things that aren't true because there's an agenda and there's, and there's information that's being blocked. Like for example, if Bernie Sanders has a big, uh, showing, they don't want to show that on the media because there's certain, you know, uh, people who have an agenda not to have that. They don't want that to happen. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And I think that documentary filmmakers are really important because they speak about messages that, you know, open up our minds, you know, and, uh, Netflix right now. I'm a big fan of what they've been doing with documentaries. They've been showing some that have really, um, just given me a perspective on things that I'm not seeing in pop culture media. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Um, so what, I'm curious, I think there's documentary documentarians out there, people who are potential journalist documentarians out there. What would you say like would be a good step for them to get started? If they have like something they want to speak about or something they want to investigate into, and maybe film or whatever they're doing or music is not the best way for them to communicate it. They want to actually get in there, interview people and do that kind of thing. What, what would be some steps they could take? Wow. <laughs> the fact that I'm sitting here on your show being asked for like advice on this is, um, <laughs> I never <laughs> thought it would come to this day, but so thank you for again, giving, giving me that, that platform. <laughs> I, I still don't necessarily feel, um, uh, worthy of giving that advice. Um, maybe because in my own mind, I still feel like a, a bit of a, a hack who has a camera who just kind of like is really interested in, in these stories. Can I stop you for a second? Yeah. I feel like from the documentarians and journalists that I've met, you guys tend to have a similar response as you just said, because I think you guys often start with just curiosity and you just have a camera and you go and you capture that. That's, that's what I'm observing you know, as a filmmaker, there's kind of a, and then the people end up capturing this real beauty, this really amazing truth about the world. And they never went out with some kind of plan. They didn't know how it was going to happen. A lot of it, they stumbled upon by accident. And, and so like, um, it, would you say that's true for you? That seems to be what I keep hearing. Yeah. Um, well, what, yeah. So just to segue from that, uh, is that I just, I had a camera. I was able to get access to a camera pretty cheaply. I think I bought it because I wanted to film some cool moments of the torch relay. I thought I'm going to go all across Canada, 106 days, thousands of communities. It'd be cool to have to film this. So I got a camera and I just sort of learned the the basics of shooting. And even now, I don't even have. I still just have a little Canon HD Canon Vixia. I've been blessed to have. Uh, met some amazing videographers, cinematographers, and editors that I've kind of like been able to um, work with in the last couple of years. But I myself don't necessarily have like a film background, but I do have this this curiosity. I had this um, a bit of a, a bit of no shame, <laughs> a bit of just eagerness to to make the story happen, and uh, I guess a bit of 
a bit of like a rebellious, not wanting to follow like the the fold. So mm-hmm. maybe having those three things um, allowed gave me the 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 vigor or the wherewithal to be able to go and and make it happen. You know, make this happen in London, make this this other bigger project happen in Sochi, and and now make things happen in Rio. But I didn't have. Uh, it's funny because I see I see guys all the time. Uh, even just this past weekend, I was at this or two weekends ago, I was at the Social Media Mastery Conference, and I met with this guy who was a videographer, has this beautiful HD camera, that he's got a drone, and they ended up uh, wanting to do some highlights. So they asked me because I do some interviewing for some other community TV stuff. So him and I ended up working together that day, and he was uh, I, I was so impressed with like his equipment and his knowledge and like a lot of the lingo I didn't even really get because I just kind of know about the story and maybe I've got a a good sense of you know dramatic what what makes for a more dramatic moment or maybe a bit of a heightened emotion around certain uh issues or certain moments uh but I was so impressed with his technical skill and I guess he was impressed with you know my interviewing skill but I, I give a lot of credit to, to, to those guys. Um, however, you know, I guess all you really need to have is is the the ambition to do it, and especially if you're blessed enough to meet a really good videographer. You get a really good videographer, and you have a and you have that, this enthusiasm. The two of you guys could make magic together, mm-hmm. and that's kind of what happened with London. Is my friend Lorna? She's an amazing videographer, and I just was the one who wasn't scared to say like, oh, let's sneak into this line or let's sneak the camera into this stadium even though it says no cameras. Right. Uh, meanwhile, she could like, you know, ha- got all the technical stuff down and I was a little more like, oh, this would make for a good shot or a good story. Well, I just wanted it to happen and I was lucky enough to have my own basic camera and have a good videographer with me. Hmm. So I guess to, to answer the question is uh, it doesn't really take a lot except for well, some drive. To it's make it interesting, happen. you know, it's it's a really interesting thing because it's an internal, it's such an internal game. I mean, that's... Yeah, when you cut the crap, it's just like there's really nothing, there's really not much barrier that's stopping you from, from going out and doing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're using what, you're using what's available. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's funny because I think about it, you know, I, I meet these filmmakers, I might as well put that in quotations, because I meet filmmakers who've gone to school, they have... The red camera. They have the best cameras available. They have all the gear. They have, you know, their whole school, and they can't make a film. But yet, you'll have someone who never went to film school, never did anything, and yet, you know, they're winning forty plus awards, and they're, you know, getting distribution. And I just think that, you know, it's it's interesting that you say that because I actually don't think being a filmmaker is actually that much different than being a documentarian. I mean, it's. It's simply having a vision and being like, we're going to figure out how to get this done. We don't know how we're going to do it, mm-hmm. but um, we're going to do it, you know? And uh, and it, I'm really glad that it kind of came down to that, you know, because, you know, what are you going to do at the end of the day? You're probably the kind of guy that will pick up your iPhone or whatever thing you have and you'll film something mm-hmm. and, you'll, and you, you can see that we need to capture this. You know, I think that's really cool. I mean, I think that... I think that, um, you know, the whole thing about the artist without a paintbrush, I mean, you know, we don't have to have the best paintbrush, you know, we might need to figure out how to get a paintbrush, right? Mm-hmm. Or whatever. We still got our or, fingers. Yeah. We still yeah, got whatever, them. right? Yeah. yeah. It's, um, <laughs> and, I, and, I, and, uh, 
there's something else I want to, to get into with you. Oh yeah. How much, how much do you know you're going to like, how much direction and, and things do you know that you're going to get and how much of it is a surprise to you? Hmm. Uh, that's a good question. Cause there's some, there's some times in London. Again, I was lucky. Lorna is amazing. Uh, she's like a sister to me. We met in Australia way back in 2000 ahead of the, ahead of the Sydney games. And we've been friends for years and we just kind of have a really great rapport. So we would sit down and we would talk, you know, before each day, what's our plan today? What do we want to get? What would make for good footage? But in Sochi, I didn't really have a Lorna. Again, I had this Russian girl that I was working with for a little while. Um, but I kind of had to just go and whatever I, my instinct would say, this would make for a cool shot without the camera and, and try to film it. And man, I shot in the, the documentary is now half an hour, probably a good five minutes of that is news clips that are kind of helping tell the story. So I only have maybe 25 minutes of my own footage, if that, but I shot like hours upon hours, not really knowing what was going to be the gold. And sometimes you get the gold, and, and, and some, you know, a lot of times you'll know it when you get it. Like, someone will give you a sound bite, you're like, oh, that was it. That was great. <laughs> but you have to have the camera there for 20 or 30 minutes until you get the gold. Right, you just got to keep rolling. Yeah. Mm. I, was, I, mean, I say comedies a lot like that. Just don't stop the camera. Just let it roll. Let them let talk. Let them do it. You mm-hmm. know? And then, you know, like I, I've heard a lot of, like, the Will Ferrell. And, I mean, I can name off a bunch of big comedians these days, and it's just... I've heard a lot. Roll the camera. Just don't stop the camera. Let's just have them do it again. Run it. Mm-hmm. Let them ad lib. You know. And I think uh, it sounds like documentary is kind of like that. You know, it's just capture it, and hopefully, while you have that camera rolling, you're on it. <laughs> if I can share one more story that's kind of related to sure. this. Now you've seen the doc, Brandon. Yeah. So do you remember the character Brian Fotley? He's the openly gay Canadian who was speaking about he was quite knowledgeable this guy was is a master's student at the Olympic Academy in Greece and I met him at this at this like luncheon thing in Sochi and I was immediately impressed with his knowledge and his passion and I was like oh I got to get this guy on camera he's great and I met him this would have been maybe the fifth or sixth day of the Olympics and over the next few days we got it we exchanged Facebook information and we kept messaging back and forth can we meet this day that day and just it's so busy you know the Olympics if you ever get a chance to go, you know, you're probably going to sleep on average of three, maybe four hours a night. There's just so much going on. And the days would pass, and unfortunately, I just never got a chance to connect with them. My last night in Sochi, I bumped into him at Swiss House with some other Canadians having some drinks. And I'm like, Brian, ah, oh. he's like, oh, yeah, Wade, good to see you. And then I said, I want my camera with me. Or, or no, I think I had my camera, but it was just like it was dark and it was loud. And then again, we'd already had a couple of drinks. I was like, when can we get this interview? He's like, well, maybe tomorrow morning. I said, well, I might, I'm leaving tomorrow at lunchtime. Is there any, <laughs> whatever time is good for you. So what ended up happening is I had, I took a cab to like where he was working. He took a bit of like a break and like, because of the language barrier, I had to just like let the cab, the meter just run because I wasn't sure I was tight on time to catch my plane. Wow. There was so many factors that were going on. And we just had to like, get, I had to pluck him out of his, he was working as a, a volunteer in the, I think the Canadian press center. And we had to find kind of a nice quietish spot that wasn't too far from his work. and wasn't too far from my cab with the meter running. And this is like literally on the way to the airport. 
but I just knew that this guy was such a good, and I was late too, but this guy was such a good source that I wanted to get what he, what he had to say. And we probably, I probably spent a good 20 minutes with him to try to get the gold. And I did. Like he yeah, gave me some great. That was great, an important point in the documentary. I remember that. Some great points. He, you know, he's not in the documentary for too long, but he, we see him about three or four times. But every time he's on camera, he makes like a killer point that makes you go, "Oh yeah," or like interesting or true. And he was, mm-hmm. I'm so thankful that I met him, and also thankful that the universe lined it up that I was able to still interview him. And make and make my flight all mm-hmm. and, you know it was crazy crazy I, I had like two hours sleep that night too because I got up early to like get everything ready but you know so I didn't have the best camera I didn't have any lighting I just had I just knew I wanted to get this guy um, in the shot and uh, I don't even think I, the laugh that I had wasn't working and I, I somehow I was able to make it happen and wow. thank, thank God I did but yeah. it was that, it was that drive it was the drive to, to make sure that it happened yeah. Well, <clears throat> I want to take a little a brief break because we're all about to drink our beer um, on our second glass. We've been talking away. Um, so this is from Yellow Dog Brewery, which is in, uh, I don't know if it's Port Moody or if it's Coquitlam. I think it's Coquitlam. It's right on the border <laughs> of the two all right. little tri-cities. Um, but anyway, this, this had a really good name. It was uh, Follow Your Tail Pale Ale. Oh, I like it. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, so, um, I don't know, you guys seem to be drinking it back pretty good. Yeah, no, this is really, it's really nice. Yeah? Loving it. You enjoying it? Really nice, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, uh, well, it's a pale ale, it's a little darker. Um, I think it's got a pretty good, good taste, and it had a great name. Yeah, no, it's, (laughs) it's got a nice, it's got a nice balance to it. Nice balance of hops and malts and... Yeah. Dryness and, and, yeah, it's great. You know what I was thinking? Because the weather's been a little bit funny today. It's been hot, and it's been a little chilly. It's been hot, and it's been a little chilly. So I was like, I'm not sure what it's going to look like by the time we get to this podcast, because it's like bouncing, like between... And I was like, we need to find some kind of middle ground here. Yeah. Because I was going to go for their wheat beer, and uh, I think this is a good choice, because it was like... It was good. It was like, you know, for today. The amount (laughs) of decisions that have to be in... (laughs) To make the decision. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, we've had a lot of beers. This is our 48th podcast, actually. Nice. Well, I appreciate the yeah. the love and attention that's gone into selecting just the right beer for this, mm. for this moment and for this day. Well, we've been practiced. I mean, we've... <laughs> I mean, I can just imagine we get to... If we ever get to our 100th plus podcast or whatever, you know, uh, how good we'll be with our beer. Because <laughs> mm. <laughs> we've literally had uh, at least 48 different types now. Nice. Just yeah, on wow. this. Just on this show. Just on this show. Yeah. <laughs> Every show, different, different kind of beer. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah, a big not always a different breweries. Um, you yeah, know, I'm so- pretty sure we've managed to do a different beer every single time. Like, yeah. so, like we've revisited breweries and stuff before, but uh, yeah, the ones, the breweries that tend to be the closest to where we are get a little favoritism. That makes um, sense. But uh, but we like to venture out. I mean, we went to the island, or Evan went to the island once and got one from uh, Tofino brewery i believe it was yeah yeah i was out there on a on a vacation yeah. and and i was like i'm getting a growler fill and i'm taking it back just for <laughs> nice <laughs> yeah so just uh for the show you know i i think it's been like i love our craft breweries around here and uh you know eventually we'll go down the coast and try some other breweries there and whatever and i think it's just uh it's kind of a neat little thing that's happened on our on our podcast because we would get together and we would we would have a talk we'd have a beer 
and it was uh, it was just a good way for us to just start communicating. And mm-hmm. then uh, one day we started saying, "Well, hey, why don't we record some of these conversations?" And then it's kind of a, a neat evolution. So we've kind of kept the beer in it, and you know, it's great. Is like uh, we wouldn't have this conversation today had we not just said, "Hey, why don't we start recording this?" And we'll have some beer. We'll keep it chill, and we'll see what happens. So, yeah. Well, I'm very grateful that you guys had that moment six, seven <laughs> months ago, whenever it was. <laughs> and grateful for this beer. It's, it's delicious. And it really is sitting down, having a nice glass of beer or two or three. Not much more than three, because once you get into like four and five, things get a bit sloppy. Yeah, but I yeah. find in those first couple of beers, um, it's a really nice way to share some stories, feel very relaxed, um, and really just enjoy. Uh, these moments, and I, yeah. I think that a really good beer, um, consumed in moderation, yeah. in moments like this, really does add a nice little sort of positive golden twist to what, <laughs> yeah. what otherwise a good conversation suddenly is that much greater. Yeah. And I hope that our listeners feel the same thing, whether you're drinking or not. <laughs> well, you know, it's uh, it, and it's been good having you a guest. Uh, you've been really relaxed and at ease throughout the whole thing. I mean, uh, and 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 that's. I think our aim is we want to just have a relaxed atmosphere and, you know, have a conversation about all this stuff that we're so passionate about, you know, and maybe someone on the other end benefits from it. And, and it, and the very least we all get to share a little bit of ourselves with each other and move forward. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And there's been a few times when, uh, when, you know, the beers that we've had have done us in. <laughs> When yeah, sometimes when we don't Belgian have, triples. Yeah, those Belgian <laughs> triples can really work you over, that's for sure. 11% alcohol. Yeah, we've gotten a little a titch uh, sloppy on maybe one or two yeah. <laughs> two episodes, but Yeah. But uh, you know, it makes for makes for uh, we kept it together for yeah. the most part. <laughs> um, well, I mean, I don't do you have any more questions you want to wrap it up, figure out what our Yeah, I don't know fun. if I have any more questions. I think that we can wrap this uh wrap this guy up with a couple of points well i'll start this time i think yeah uh, the, the big thing that i'm taking away from all of this um is you were talking about you know you're saying yeah like you were surprised that i was asking you for to share advice for new documentarians mm-hmm. and i think that 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 is uh that's kind of what it's like, I think, as an artist, is we don't even realize that we've become an authority in some way that we can help other people. We're just out there doing our thing. Mm-hmm. It's important to us. And, you know, you've been pursuing this since 88. I mean, really. But, you know, quite actively since since uh, 2010. And, you know, you've put a lot of time that people haven't put in. And I think that your knowledge and your experience can just help people get off on that right foot. Because I'm sure there's someone on the other side of this line who's thinking, I want to make a documentary and I don't know what to do. And what I got from what you told me, and I I actually might be that person because I've thought a lot about there's some documentaries I'd like to make. But just follow that curiosity. Grab a camera, capture some shit. And, you know, and let's, and, and just, and find the story you want to tell. And that's what I really liked about what you did with Soji is you said, uh, you know, I think this is an important part that we need to capture. And you went out and you did it and you don't know what's going to happen. I think that's the hard part about a documentary is you really don't know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. You don't know what it's going to look like, but you go out there and what I, what I'd applaud you for is, is you pushed yourself to go to other countries, to go to other places you know, and, uh, and capture stuff. I mean, how cool is that? I don't know. So anyway, I'd say 
get, you know, follow that curiosity. I think that's the big lesson that I'm, that I'm taking away from this one. Yeah. 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 Uh, for me, it's just like getting out and doing that. I think that's amazing. You know, it was just like removing all of these, all the ridiculous barriers that you think are, are there getting in the way of you going out and, and doing it, you know, like get out there and do it, get out there and do it, you know? And it's like, and it might not be perfect, but you've got another one. Like you, there's an infinite number of next ones for you to do. Mm-hmm. So get out and do it and, and follow the joys. We've been talking uh, a lot. <laughs> last little while. Throw that in there. <laughs> Throw that in there. Let's just, uh, I love bringing these little gems back in. And, um, and, and yeah, the other thing that kind of stuck out, we didn't necessarily, well, I guess we touched on it, but you know, you, you don't really know when something is a bad thing, you know, like these things that we, that, that happen and you're just like, Oh, this, this is so shitty that this happened. You don't know if it's a bad thing. It could be the most perfect thing to have happened. You know, like yeah. it could have been, could be an absolute blessing. Yeah. I, I, I'd second that because you're getting fired or whatever. You're like, this is a hard point. I was a low point, but I imagine that you created a lot of awareness out of that low point in your life. And, uh, it's probably a lot to do with how you've moved forward. You mm-hmm. know, I think without those lows, we don't really have that depth as artists. So, you know, I think that I don't think we need to hope for this career of just having all these ups. I think we need to have some moments where, you know, we have some downs and we, we connect with ourselves a little more Mm -hmm. and can see that, or maybe have the the wherewithal, the patience to realize that this is just, this is just this chapter of the book. This is not like, you know, this is suddenly your book is over, your life is over, your career is over. This is just, you know, an interesting part as if you take an observer point of view and you can see your life or your career progression as a, as a book, that it, this is just a more interesting, challenging chapter that you have to, that you have to, um, another challenge you've got to overcome. Uh, and a lot of times it's hard to see the forest through the trees because we're so, we're in our own forest and we're just like, we're in our own minds. But, um, what, what I found is, is, you know, help sometimes is to like literally physically take yourself out of the forest. So you could, or to get, take yourself out of the trees, so you can see the forest. So if I'm too caught in my own head, just even leaving town for a day or two, just going to the island. You know, we're here in Vancouver, so Vancouverites listening, <laughs> going to the island for a day, or or taking a drive to Hope, BC, or whatever the case may be, just to like, you know, get out of your daily surroundings to kind of see the, that it's a bigger picture and that your problems are bigger than what's in your own head. Mm-hmm. That's that's been hugely beneficial for me. Yeah, well, that's great. Is there um, is there anything that if you uh, for those future documentarians out there, those future journalists? you want to leave them with like a, like a little tag to say, get started. What's the first thing they should do today or tomorrow, right after they listen to this podcast? I would say find out what it is you love to do or find out what it is that you do really, really well and invest a lot of your time in doing more of that. And eventually you can become an authority on that topic. Um, whether it be the Olympics or like the cultural side of the Olympics in my case. Uh, well, quickly, let me ask you, what is it, what is it that you love to do? I, I don't know if I want to open a whole can of worms if we're going to like well, take no, it's, it's a great question. I mean, uh, you know, I, for me, I, storytelling is, is a big thing, but I think about it as, uh, 
Um, I mean, everything for me, I think the whole reason why I'm still in the film industry, it all comes back to when I was uh, 15 or 16 or right around there. And I, I remember I was going to see movies. My parents had split up and we lost our fortune. And I was living in a trailer park with my dad, actually, because we went from nothing, we went from everything to nothing. But I remember going to see some movies and uh, them impacting my life and just thinking, there's, there's, there's something in these stories that I was watching that I felt like there was more. There's more to my life than what was ever going on. And uh, I think when I was 16, that's when I started the filmmaking thing. And I, I think I, I thought, you know, um, if I ever made a film one day that impacted me the way that like, and I think it was Fight Club, I think that was the movie that really was the turning point. But if I ever made a movie that in some way impacted the way this has impacted me, I thought my whole life is a success, you know, and it's worth it, whatever happens from this point on. So when I think about it, I go, yeah, like the passion, the thing I'm passionate about is, is trying to find that truth in, in my life, you know, is a, and I think that's why I like movies. I think that's why I like story because I think, um, you know, when you're a kid and you're growing up and you're alone and you know, you feel like you're lost and you find that purpose to can, to go forward. I think that's what life's all about. So I think, um, I'm passionate about finding purpose, you know, and, and finding a reason. Like, I think that's why I like story because even if the story isn't real, the way I look at it is I might as well tell a great story about my life. Cause even if it's all chaos and, and nothing means anything and we're just, we're just cells that die or whatever, do I want to believe that? Or do I want to live a story that meant something to me and, and gave me a sense of joy and purpose in life? So when I, when I make movies, I think that's why I'm passionate about it, you know? So yeah. And I think that's why like, you know, at this point in my life, I continue doing it because I think it's important. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that answers the question, but that's that's what gets me up in the morning. Nice. Well, I mean, I guess that also hit you at a very emotionally charged time. You know, and that's you know, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen. We're going yeah. through a lot of growing, a lot of emotions, and it, it, I found this some things that happened in my life at that at that point. Like certain music that I listened to at that age has is the same kind of music that I will continue to listen to years down the road because it's, it hit some kind of nerve that really affected me during a, a very um, vulnerable, important time in my life. Um, and how about you, Evan? Do you <laughs> turn it around here? <laughs> Suddenly, I'm, I'm the host of the show. You're my guest. No, it's, right. no, it's, it's great. No, it's, I had the opportunity to to actually think about this, like since you asked it. And um, you know, for me, it uh, I, you know, I realize it's, I'm glad you asked this because it's something that I haven't really asked myself in, in a long time. But it's gonna come come down to this joy thing. You know, it's like I I want to want people to be more joyful in their lives. And that's always been, you know, where, where I started with acting, you know, even as a, you know, like a, I think the first like acting class I took, I was like nine years old. No, maybe I was a little older than that. I was young. I was got thrown into a theater sports class because I said, I want to act. And my <laughs> parents were like, well, we'll put you in this little, little community theater, theater, like, <laughs> workshop thing. And, um, and it was just because like, I love doing, you know, like, like voices and characters and stuff like that. And it, and it really made it, and people were so entertained by it. People would laugh and and would enjoy it. And then it would make me feel really joyful to have, to have done that. And, 
and as I've gone into, you know, other, other things and with like teaching now and, and with screenwriting as well and, and continuing to act, it really, it still comes down to, to joy, making people more joyful in their lives and, and helping people to see the joy in, you know, more so now is like, it's like not just making people joyful, but helping people to see the joy, mm. you know, like in life and that sort of thing. So that's, that's what it's all about for me. Awesome. Yeah. Well, this has been one hell of a podcast. No, and like, what a great questions to ask back to us. Wade. <laughs> Jordan, <laughs> Thanks, Wade. Jordan, Jordan Wade. <laughs> Jordan Wade. I know. We should do uh, a little voiceover for that. Like, yeah. <laughs> in the podcast, like, today on the show, Jordan Wade. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> Anyhow. Why, thank you. <laughs> All right, man. Well, thanks for being on board. Thanks for having me. And if anyone out there is listening wants to learn more about the projects, especially the upcoming one, uh, www.realrio, R-E-A-L-R-I-O dot TV. Awesome. Check it out. Beautiful. Cheers. That was our show for today. Thanks a lot for listening and being a part of this. If you enjoyed our conversation, please subscribe and share with your friends and family. Or you can learn more and message us at www.thebndpodcast.com. Oh, and make sure to leave a comment and rate us on iTunes. That will really help us out a lot. It definitely will. Thanks.